Adida Leiskart Vint is a renowned circular economy and design expert. She is author of Danish Design Heritage and Global Sustainability and a Changemaker's Guide to the Future. She is the chairwoman of the Danish Design Council and a founder of The Circular Way. She is known for pioneering new materials as well as business models while sharing the knowledge gained from practice through teaching and thought leadership and is a member of the executive board of the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts Schools of Architecture, Design and Conservation, as well as the global SDG Innovation Lab, Unleash. Dieter Leisgaard-Wind, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to speak with you today to discuss the important work you do at The Circular Way. You have this upcoming book, Danish Design Heritage and Global Sustainability with Rutledge, that you're going to share with us. So not coming from a design and architecture background myself, I stumbled a little bit into the realm of design and particularly the built environment. And what I just continuously saw was that By putting design first, it really enables us to shape a future that we don't yet know, but we need to be super tactile and practical about it as well. And then seeing that is something that design very much has the ability to do. And at the same time, having this growing frustration that wherever you go, whoever you talk to, sustainability was a compromise. It was something that meant uglier, less convenient, more expensive, all these different things. But then diving into the Danish design heritage, seeing that what set them apart was that after the world wars, they had a social purpose of democratizing and rebuilding the welfare state. And that was not something that lessened the final result. On the contrary, it heightened the ambition and the final design and the solutions. So I was really inspired by that, that seeing that there's actually both from the products are still circulated today. So from a very tactile perspective of the individual products, but also, of course, from the philosophical perspective of really having seeing the planetary boundaries as a positive creative constraint and not being afraid to challenge the system and really looking towards how do we once again go back to having a focus on use rather than exchange value. And thus, for me, it became a way to make something which is unfortunately a bit difficult, like we, because we talk about systems change and we want that, but what might that look like? How might it smell? What might it feel like? All of these different things that is difficult for us to imagine currently. The Danish design heritage, I'm not saying it solves everything, but it does provide tangible perspectives on what that world might look like and how we might go about shaping it. So what I wanted to share was actually from the seventh chapter in the book, and it's a manifest for design in the Anthropocene. And so I'll share a bit of the intro to the manifesto and just some of the principles. Does the world need another design object? Yes, it most certainly does. However, unfortunately, a large part of the designs made today, we could have very well been without, mainly because it's been made to drive exchange rather than use value the result being limited problem solving and improvement for the user and society at large, but with high gains for the financial sector as a driver for sales. Did we really need that new color? So design and designers are at a crossroads and face a choice. A choice of rather design is a nice add-on or if it's a necessary part of rethinking the rules of the game to create new solutions, not just doing less harm, but creating improvement for a global population 
while staying within the planetary boundaries. Because with our entrance to the Anthropocene, it's painfully obvious that we have the power to destroy. So it is our choice if we wish to stay on a trajectory of destruction and despair, or if we wish to reclaim our power and use the sign as a force for good and work towards repair and ultimately towards reimagining a regenerative world, using the unique abilities of design to shape the future. So it's a choice for design, rather it wishes to be a world maker or world breaker. And I think you can guess what my answer is. And that's why, inspired by the likes of Coughlin and his philosophy of combining tradition with new practices and innovation, I created this manifest of 10 principles for design in the Anthropocene, bringing together the collective wisdom of both the heritage, my practical experience, as well as that of current designers and not least progressive system thinkers such as Donna Haraway and Christiana Figueres to pave the way for design to be a world maker. The purpose being to once again channel human ingenuity to spark creativity and action. So a manifest for designers to use, but also for society and business at large to learn from and be inspired by to create improvement in whatever profession one might be. Because the good news is that we have that possibility. And however dire our global situation is, it is also an opportunity for us to regain our creative force. And as we already learned from the Danish design heritage, social purpose can be a positive creative constraint and combined with the tactility of design, raise the level of ambition and shape even better solutions that create global prosperity within our planetary boundaries. And so just to f finish off, I'll just share a few of the principles without going into to details, but it's viewing the planetary boundaries as a positive creative constraint, not being afraid of staying the trouble, that it's most likely simple, that it's imperfect, and it's design that cares. So that's with just a few of the principles. Yeah. Well, it's so important to set down those principles because we're in this crucial decade in so many ways. It's now being confirmed that we will very soon, unfortunately, arrive at 1.5 degrees and in increase in climate yeah. change. And so dealing with that, we have to have these things written down and stop talking about it, but implementing it. And it, you call up many important questions. What is good design? So often we thought about it as something, as you say, superfluous or something that's added on or it's one of infinite varieties when maybe the beauty of good design is that it's interchangeable, modular, and that there's a standard and norm so that we can really have a circular economy when we've all agreed upon these things. I believe simple design is very good. But the other thing is how do you convince designers and business people and the investor class not to be constantly wanting to put their own stamp on it? But as you said, it's good for all of society and that regenerates and is reused. The many R's that is a circular economy. Yeah, exactly. And for me, I think that there's, of course, a lot of things when you move to the design of the individual product or the business model or system or what might it be. But also just from an initial point of that ability to stay with the trouble, which is the notion that I borrowed from Donna Haraway. But I think it really relates to design and designers' ability to get comfortable in really exploring the problem from all of the different ways one might address it. And that really matters because I think, unfortunately, what we see today, a lot of our solutions ends up being something that treats the symptom, but doesn't actually go to the sort of the root cause of the problem and really addresses the context around it. So I think it's something that design has the ability to do. We just need to maybe relearn it and use it more. And then the second part being the intentionality of design that, you know, unfortunately, as I mentioned in the chapter, we now use it more as a sort of driver for sales or the exchange value of 
as soon as the product leaves the store, there's not a lot of value left. But if we go back to a focus on use value and creating value for people while staying within the planetary boundaries, there's that opportunity within design as design always questions everything, right? Whether it's a teacup or a school or whatever you're designing, you're consciously making choices of the shape, the color, everything is up for discussion and for debate, which I think if we look at the amount of things that we take for granted as being natural, when in fact it's social constructions that could be different, there's really something in utilizing that opportunity of intentionality to ask those questions and not just take things for granted as a natural state. Yes. And one of your principles at The Circular Way, which you're head of, is designing the world of tomorrow with the waste of today while designing a world without waste. And that's something of what you were addressing, but just help us really understand that. It makes us break our existing economic notions, right? Yeah. So for me, that's the issue of where we are today, that there is a duality in we have to have really ambitious long-term goals of that fundamental systemic change where we're no longer designing for waste as we unfortunately do today. Really looking towards a regenerative society, including that we have more or less designed out waste completely. And that's where we need to go. But as you also just touched upon with how we're how we're progressing in terms of climate change and temperature rise, but also biodiversity and, and planetary boundaries in general, we can't only think of the good of the future. We also need to think of, okay, what can we do to Today and tomorrow, because those reductions will then be continued reductions for the years to come. So they really matter from that perspective, but also just that we're so close to the tipping points that we really need to just do a lot today. So if we really started, let's say, 20 years ago, the solution space would look different than it does today. And that's why some of the work that we've really been involved with in the circular way, but also in Linnea, the circular way, which is the entity that's been doing a lot of material innovation. So taking waste streams, particularly in my plastics, textiles, you name it, that were of the lowest grade. So would either be incinerated or landfill and then turning them into new products via design. And so that's, in my perspective, a good thing to do for the short term, because we want to make sure that it's not incinerated and it stays in use as long as possible. But of course, in a future world, we wouldn't want those materials becoming waste in the first place. And that's a duality that we need to be mindful of continuously. How do we create that short-term progress, but without just continuously enabling the wrong solution? So from my perspective and the sort of one thing being designing the products and the value chain around it, but also the business model around it, having a focus on not doing a lot of CapEx investing so that if you do that, you end up having a certain amount of years before you have your return on investment. And then you actually rely on that waste stream being available for that amount of time. And then you end up being part of problem rather than solution could be the case at least. So really figuring out how do we solve all those short-term challenges and designing with the waste that we have while being mindful of not ending up essentially just reproducing the existing system that we have today. And I think circular economy holds a great opportunity and I think it's a necessary part of the solution space. But we do also need to be mindful that when it comes to absolute sustainability, effects so far have been limited because there is also that challenge of it rather than challenging the existing systems, it becomes an enabler of business as usual. Because if you're a fashion company, it could be an example. And you know, it's like, oh, it doesn't matter that we have a lot of dead stock going, not even reaching the consumer, because at least we have, we can turn it into 
a new product in a new way stream. And that's, of course, not where we need to go. We need to continuously and always be mindful of reduce. That's the starting point. That if we want to be sure that we're staying within the planetary boundaries, reduce is the easiest way to go. And then I think other really interesting one is the replaced materials. So all of the bio-based materials that are starting to come into use again, I think that it's almost innovation by remembrance because we used to use hemp and wood and all of these materials much more than we do today. But so there's a great opportunity there. And then also for having storage of carbon within our materials. And then as we look to the future, not a lot of years to the future, but a few years, you see all this next generation of bio-based materials. So mycelium being a key example of that but there's a lot going on there where you can either see new materials or that we learn to bioengineer some of the materials the first generation bio-based materials that we have today and so once we start being able to do that creates another opportunity again but going back to the point of we do need to design with the waste that we have and so for me i've created this sort of simple model for us to work with in just having the four r's the circular way which is there's this overarching r that isn't part of the four because it should always be part of the puzzle, which is rethinking. So really being mindful of how do we rethink the product and the system and have a focus on use rather than exchange value. But then when we move from there, there's reuse, reduce, recycle and replace. And as mentioned, with reduce, we're really quite certain of staying within the planetary boundaries. With reuse, we're also in a pretty good place. And with recycling, we are most likely a bit further from staying within the planetary boundaries. So while absolutely a necessary tool. We need to be mindful that it's not the perfect solution. And if we can work with either reduce or reuse, we should. And then as I tried to explain just now with the biogene materials, the joker sort of being the replace and the possibility of having new materials. I think in that sense, it's interesting. I work a lot with materials because that's that's how we turn waste into something new, right? So it's very tactile and low tech to, to quite a degree, but maybe advanced low tech if we want to be positive about it. But There's this weird thing when you look at materials innovation for the last 50 or so years that as technology has given us new opportunities, we've been so focused on looking towards what can technology do for us. So it's almost been a design principle of moving as far away from nature as possible moving us far away from the simple solution as possible. There's these unnecessary layers of complexity. And now we're starting to see, okay, wait, what if actually we don't try to move as far away from the natural state as possible, but via bioengineering, utilizing what nature has given us and really works with that and maybe finds ways where we can use our human ingenuity to improve that. But based on what nature has created, because that is extremely smart and to a large degree I still see that nature is just continuously proving to be much smarter than we are as of now so rather than working against nature if we work with nature and build upon nature's solution I think that there's a great opportunity space but unfortunately we've been moving in a different direction for quite some time. Yes, of course. Nature is circular by design and nothing gets wasted within that perfect loop. So we're very excited about all those new biomaterials. Of course, we have many deadlines and goals to meet the Paris Accord. It seems like we'll do our best, right? In terms of going on stream with renewable energy and not putting carbon into the environment. So we are using materials that, although it advances us toward net zero or transitioning to renewable energy, it's not perfect. How do we close that loop? And What are the exciting things on the horizon? Yeah, that's a really good question because it's interesting. I think the more complex the problem is, 
the more simple solutions are needed. Not saying that we don't need a lot of complexity as well, especially because we've let the problem go on for so long. But also for me, what I see is the current conversation going on, that it's either you have these people subscribe to technology will save us or degrowth will save us. And in my perspective, when we look at the scale of the problem, it will never be one or the other. It has to be both things coming together. And I work a lot with the built environment because that's kind of where I randomly landed <laughs> quite a few years back. And when she started working with the built environment, it's very difficult to leave because the problem is so large. So there's also a very large opportunity space for solutions. But we look at the built environment, the UN predicts that we have to build every month in order to cater to growing population growth and particularly a growing middle class. But then we have to build the entire square meters of Manhattan every month. And so that's not going to work. So that going back to how do we focus on use rather than exchange value and change the systems towards more is not necessarily better, which is easy for me to say coming from Denmark, where we have one of the largest footprints of square meters per capita. But part of that, obviously, there is a niceness to having a certain amount of square meters, but the majority of the square meters that we have today are mainly based on this success paradigm. You know, if you are successful, you need a very large home because that's how you show success. And if you also need two cars and you need to continuously buy things, and we've been become part of this consumerism exchange value paradigm rather than looking at what is it actually that drives value for me? And how do we go about creating that within the planetary boundaries? And so there's that necessary layer of systemic cultural change where we go back to focusing on creating prosperity for people, use value within the planetary boundaries. And in that sense, there will be a degrowth for the individual capita in the Western world, and there will be industries that will become obsolete in that regard. But that doesn't change the fact that we still need to build a lot more than we do today, because let's say we're successful at creating that behavioral change and then we only have to build the Manhattan's amount of square meters every other month. So having reduced by 50%, we still need new technology. We still need human ingenuity in terms of new materials and innovations to get us there. And so for me, it's really a matter of how do we bridge that puzzle of realizing that we need so many different things to come together at the same time in order to get us there. Yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of the themes that you have touched upon, like the bigger questions and system changes, they are not just technical changes, they are social changes, right? And what I've found recently in my studies is that we are seeing a very interesting transition in academia on the subject of circular economy. Specifically, we are seeing an increasing emphasis on the social benefit and cost of circular economy and how they are being distributed throughout the entire society. And as my professor would say, we've been investigating the material hardware of circulation for a while now, but we are just now starting to touch upon the social software side of things. Additionally, I think it may be interesting to look at this question through different geographical scales, right? So for example, we can say that the global waste trading system focuses on recycling of materials, but it does negatively impact a lot of socially marginalized people, or we can see a local repair shop or a community composting site that can support local well-being and food security. So I kind of want to get your perspective on the social implications of circular economy. 
Yeah, that's a really important question to be mindful of. And I think as you also touch upon looking at geographical, and I think looking at a global scale, the European Union have been really early adapters of the circular economy. And if you look back in 2015, 2016, the first policy strategy that was coming out of the European Union was called growth within. And I think that was very telling for what was driving the circular economy from a policy perspective, because it was a jobs agenda in that if we look towards a circular economy in which we might keep the materials in-house within the union and there becomes an opportunity for a skilled labor repair economy. And we know better now that's very much needed jobs and it's actually an issue in that sense that we don't have enough skilled laborers to really have that repair economy. So in that sense of job creation, there's a very much a social aspect to it. Then as you touch upon, it's also a global agenda for resource scarcity and how we go about sharing resources having access to resources is something that we're not yet but should be tackling because that will be a key issue in order to have global equality. It's much more difficult to do and very easy to say but that we'll have some of the developing world leapfrogging in the sense that we have a strong tradition of exporting our solutions and we should continue to do that. So in Denmark we have a very strong waste management sector a lot of incineration plants and for them to be profitable they need to, to run at full capacity so we actually need a lot of waste in order for that to work and so that essentially creates this unfortunate situation where we lack the incentive to really reduce our waste streams and when it was created it, it made a lot of sense because it connected to district heating and it was replacing oil and, and we didn't know we could use the resources for something better but today of course we have better types of heating and we also know that we should do more so how do we take that knowledge and make sure that when other geographies plan for their waste management, they don't rely on the same amount of, of incineration, but do things in a different way. And I actually went to Peru, Lima, to talk with the Peruvian government. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity, if we're smart about it, to take those where, of course, it's. I'm not saying it's a good thing to be a developing rather than a developed country. I, I fully understand that it's not. But if we're smart about it, there's an opportunity to hopefully leapfrog in some of those regions because they don't have that infrastructure already in place that might not actually be the best solutions today. The problem, of course, is that the industries that they should rely on are still fairly new industries. And the companies that have built incineration plants for decades are really good at selling those solutions, at lobbying, all these different things. So there's a, there's very much a need to focus on that part of it. But if we're smart about it, there's an opportunity to create better solutions and then be essentially from an infrastructure perspective, have a better starting point than we do. Indeed. And it's, yeah. it breaks my heart to see some countries that have almost 365 days a year sunshine and then being lobbied by some of these fossil fuels, you know, like and it's, it should be plentiful. Yeah, that's a terrific answer. Thank you. Another question, which is kind of related to the first one, is whether or not you think circular economy as an idea should evolve from just an environmental, scientific idea into a political idea. In other words, should it be politicized? I think this is another one of these bigger questions that constantly pops up in many of our interviews we've had on circular economy with our other guests. 
I, and I really enjoy the part where you discussed how we value success and how we perceive something that is seemingly normal, but are in fact fluid social constructions, right? They're not a set in stone. Not to mention, as you said, we need systematic changes and ask deeper questions on the core issues. So in your opinion, is it a good idea to politicize it? Because on the one hand, it might help us to push the idea forward and help us to really start to ask fundamental questions and examine the system. But on the other hand, it is possible that when we start to ask those questions, we will lose the support of the companies who are currently kind of implementing a watered down version of circular economy. Yeah. In my perspective, I haven't really thought of it as whether it's politicizing or not, but, I, but when you ask, I think for sure it has to be. Because what I see is that circular economy has within it both the opportunity to be friend and foe for where we want to go. And of course, we want the support of as many companies really, you know, creating circular strategies, trying to work with circular economy as a tool as possible. But again, being mindful that we've heard a lot of companies has actually worked with circular economy, but it hasn't necessarily given the results that it should in terms of absolute sustainability. I think, in fact, it sometimes it has uh, done the opposite because you can open a magazine and then you can see these sort of, oh, no, you can buy whatever clothes you want without having to have a guilty conscience because it's made with a recycled pet or whatever it is. And so there is that sort of that it becomes guilt-free consumption and it should never become that. So I think that there is that need to, first of all, say, circularity is not a perfect solution and it will still take resources and it will still take emissions to to produce circular. And then most importantly, going back to that systemic change again, and yes, it needs to be about creating value for people while staying within our planetary boundaries and the use value for people, not just driving sales and exchange value. And unfortunately, we do see that very much today being the case that it's an enabler of business as usual. So I think for us to really free the potential of the circular economy, it is necessary to politicize it and say, no, not all circular economy is good. It needs to be about really that decoupling of value creation from the use of virgin resources and emissions. And if it's not, then we shouldn't do it. Yeah, indeed. I kind of have the same feeling in that if we are really diving into the social aspect of circular economy, then things like political economy are bound to come up. They may not be easy questions to answer, but it is important to ask those questions. My name is Ian Songli. I am a geography PhD student at the University of California, Davis. And I'm also a sustainability podcast producer for the creative process. It was a pleasure listening to this exchange of ideas on where the next stage of design and circular economy is headed. I think we've all heard of the three R principles of reduce, reuse, and recycle. Indeed, these ideas seem to permeate any talks on sustainability. And I know I can always count on the recycling bin appear every now and then on the street of my town. Not to mention when I visit the cafe in my school, I can always see the Coke bottles all lined up proudly, showing off the 100% recycled label that they have. But all of this makes me question, why then are we still facing the same issues on waste? Recall back to the 3R principle. 
And it seems a bit strange, isn't it, that recycling is getting the most attention, even though it is placed all the way in the back compared to reduce and reuse. Why is that? Is it just a coincidence? Or perhaps it is the low-hanging technological fixes that seems to be most compatible with the social economic system we have today. Circular economy as a concept can be both friend and foe, and it really depends on the context and the user of this idea. Looking back on the development history of of circular economy concept, it is easy to see how technical it is. And while technology does support half of it, the other half, the human half, is only starting to get noticed. This technological tendency makes the concept very vulnerable to being co-opted by parties that wish to employ it as a ruse to carry on their business as usual. As such, it is important to start asking questions about what role does human system and relationships play in this flow of resources and the power that accompanies it. Questions like where does the quote-unquote recycled waste go? And does it really help regenerate nature? Who gets to define and control what circular economy even means? And who are its stakeholders? Are the power relations in the current iteration of circular economy equitable? And how shall we design not just a product but a system that puts reduction and reuse in the forefront? These are big questions and they may be very hard to answer, but they are nonetheless very important. Because while technology may help to create a sustainable future, it is the human spark that makes it real. And now, let's get back to the interview. And something else that kind of piqued my interest earlier on was by you are reading that section from your book, which by the way was beautifully written. You mentioned that design doesn't have to be perfect, they can be imperfect. And I think that's a very refreshing idea in that we kind of look for perfection in all things. Like when you are reading a new advertisement for a new technology, etc., it's always about how perfect this tech really is. So I'm wondering like if you can expand on that part a little bit. Yeah, th there's a doubleness to it actually because it's imperfect in the sense of from a philosophical perspective of really embracing that things doesn't have to be imperfect, which is like the complete opposite of where design has been going for a very, very long time. But having that diversified, that it can look in many different ways and lean manufacturing doesn't have to be the only way forward, especially not if it means that everything has to look exactly the same, not least because it makes it more difficult to have more local production, local manufacturing, that becomes more difficult and it doesn't really utilize the new technological opportunities that we have. But then secondly, also just from my practical experience of working with waste fractions, the amount of things that are considered waste due to like extremely small failures in a design that however a product has been produced will mean that it will be discarded from the production side. That's absolutely crazy the amount of things that we do. So just from both the philosophical and very practical it's uh, really disheartening to see how many things we're just discarding because it isn't living up to some very strict quality perspective of perfection when it could be very much of, of value. Indeed. And that goes not just for manufactured goods, but also to food, the amount of food waste. If we were able even just to cap food waste in terms of emissions and so many other things, and that's perfectly good food that's going to waste because of some of those aesthetic considerations. 
Yeah, I think the food system is for me the most clear example of the systemic failure, the design failure of our current global system. The amount of people that go to bed hungry, that dies of malnutrition, while at the same time we're throwing away enormous amounts of our food, just simply because, again, also from a social perspective, the food waste is in one part of the world. And a lot of the hunger is in a different part, but it's not that we're actually lacking the amount of food. It's just simply that we've designed our system in such a way that it's distributed unequally and we end up having very large amounts of waste while at the same time they're clearly needed somewhere else. So for me, that's just, it's, that's really one of these areas where I'm like, it's really embarrassing, I would say, for human ingenuity that we are not fixing that. We should be able to create much smarter solutions where we're not in one part of the world wasting so much while it's so clearly needed in a different part of the world. And it goes to even the water that's piped into our homes that we use for our wastewater, our elimination, that we don't have infinite water that can be used for agriculture. It uses so much of it. Rethinking those systems, it's really huge. <laughs> I feel like it's what we should all be doing 24 hours a day. And so it's so helpful to know those examples. It's about prioritizing. I want to go into you recently at the Clusters Forum and there were these workshops. I want to know about some of these specific solutions, biomaterials materials, you and the other attendees, great innovations from recycled beer kegs to sea plants and eelgrass, which just tell us a little bit about eelgrass and how it absorbs so much greenhouse gases and how it can be used for insulation and just a few of these yeah, things. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think there are so many of these materials that are super interesting. From an agricultural perspective, we're finally starting to use hemp as a built material again, which has really great qualities. It captures CO2 in production and you can plant it so that it also helps nurture your soil. It actually makes it easier and better for you to grow your other crops in the same field. So when we're smart about it and again utilize nature, we create really good products for insulation. In that case, for the built environment, which is normally a product with a very high environmental footprint, we capture CO2 and we actually help generate and nurture soil that is needed for agriculture. And with seaweed, it's the same. It's a Brilliant material for acoustics, it, for insulation, it can be used as well. And depending on where it grows, it actually captures as much as three times as much CO2 as trees. So again, if we're smart about it, we can reduce the built environment's footprint greatly and actually move towards having some sort of the built environment becoming CO2 storage. And one of the most sort of popular things to talk about is carbon capture and storage. In Denmark, there's just been a large pool, 8 billion crowners, so that's $1.3 billion, has been put into putting carbon capture on a facility that essentially creates heat by burning trees. So it's, it's a biofuel incinerator. And so we're putting technology on something that we know we have better heating opportunities than burning wood. And because trees are so good at capturing CO2, then it actually becomes a very high emitting source of heat when we burn it because then of course it's re-released into the atmosphere so what if instead we didn't burn that wood we keep it in the forest for as long as possible so it captures as much co2 as possible and then once we have to take the trees down we put it into the built environment as building materials and then the built environment or buildings actually becomes storage while at the same time not needing all of the high emitting materials that's just something that's so simple as wood or eelgrass and some of the, the other waste streams. There's just such an abundance of opportunities and what they all share 
is that it's one solution, but it's part of fixing multiple problems. That's smart. That goes to the reverence for wood and speaks to the Danish cultural heritage. We should be using these natural materials, of course. So it's so interesting that biomaterials can be either made part of the concrete process or in the building process. And you write about partnering with life. And on the other hand, you're working with investors. How do you include them and the key decision makers to drive change? So I think I'm quite pragmatic in the sense of what I see is that in the built environment, historically, that was sort of main sector. And then we had the financial sector as a service sector providing liquidity. Today, that has changed. And it's almost as if the financial sector and the building environment as an asset class assets is the main sector and the built environment has almost become the service provider for the financial system. And that has to be balanced out and the system be recalibrated. But it does also provide an opportunity to really focus on the investors and them putting up higher requirements for sustainability. And I think the European taxonomy for sustainable finance is a really good starting point. It's not perfect. No solutions really are, but it's a really good starting point because it means that investors have to be much more mindful, not only of the positive things that they do, but also of the negative things that they do. And that's a key part of scaling up the solutions. We should really focus on moving from pilot projects to really grand scale because we've continuously done the pilot projects. We know there is so many things that work. We can really change things for the better today. It's great that there will be more innovation and technology for the future, but we have so many solutions today that we're just simply not utilizing. And that comes down to really scaling those solutions. And that demand can only come from having that market demand for those solutions. Yes. And could you also describe how our new relationship with goods and materials just doesn't save resources of energy, but go in a little bit of how it helps create those local jobs? Yeah, you have an industry, they go and then they demolish the houses. And it's at least in the Nordics, it's traditionally been very family owned businesses. So that you have the, the older generation still can remember how you used to actually pay a fee in order to be able to be the one that was allowed to demolish the house because you knew that you'd have opportunity to sell those materials. And that would be the business case for you going in as a demolisher. And unfortunately, there's been a complete reverse of that where you are paid to demolish the house, but you are paid as little as possible from even from the public sector. So your bid is valued only on how low a cost you can go. So it's manual labor. So that comes down to the amount of time that you use for it. So all of the skills of selective demolition, of dismantling, all of these things have for quite some time been seen as no value from the customer side. And luckily, we're starting to see a change there again, when all of a sudden we do want selective demolition. We do want materials to be sorted and reused and recycled and handed off to the right people. And what I hear from the demolishers, from their perspective and from a jobs perspective, it creates an opportunity to not only compete on price, but on quality again, and on the skills of dismantling the building. And that's one of the positives that I'm starting to see. And that we should see much more off in the future. However, one problem being 
that if we look at innovations in materials for the last 30, 40 years, innovation hasn't been about improving quality, improving longevity. It has been about, again, reducing cost, driving exchange value. Like the good example is the light bulb, right? That we've managed to innovate light bulbs into being of lesser quality that lasts for a shorter amount of time. Indeed, I remember growing up with my grandparents and they had a workhorse of a washing machine and dryer from the 1960s and a vacuum cleaner. And these things we've spoken to, Walter Stahl was reconditioned in the 1960s. He's very committed. Indeed. Yes, we can. And they work. And how much better if they were even designed from the outset as renewable. Yeah, you know, I had this very interesting experience this morning when I was teaching another class. And to my surprise, some of my students actually brought up life cycle thinking and circular economy. Even they didn't actually mention it by name. They were hinting at it in their project. And I was pleasantly surprised. As far as I know, we didn't teach them in class. So I'm wondering, do you see there is a general trend currently or potential in incorporating these circular economy themes into the curriculum for a newer generation of students? I think when we look towards the younger generation, there's really a sort of an opportunity for a, a design renaissance. There's, it's really circular economy and seeing the planetary boundaries as positive creative constraints is very much on the agenda. I see at the Royal Academy in Denmark, they made it so that all student projects has to take the SDGs into account. And that has been a really great process in for many reasons. It really drew some really high talented international students to wanting to pursue the Danish Royal Academy because they wanted that level of sustainability not being some sort of extra course that you can take if you like, but really be embedded within all of the teaching that we do and the mindset from how we go about designing, whether it be systems or products or materials. So I do think there is the sort of early outset of the school system. There is a growing trend towards really caring about the environment and wanting to do better and circularity being a key component of that. And then it's just our responsibility to make sure that all of those great efforts are truly turned into circular economy being friend rather than foe, because I think that's where we really need to help each other and help the newer generations. And so as you think about the future, which teachers or collaborators were important for you and in your own process, how do you take inspiration from the beauty and design of nature and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? So I think one of the most important things is not being afraid to try things out. Failure is a natural part of progression. So we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should celebrate it and embrace it. So how do we also help each other when we do fail? And rather than point fingers, nurture each other, help and learn from those failures so that we also learn to talk about failure and grow from it collectively. So embracing failure and not being afraid, but that shouldn't stop us from going out and getting practical and getting tangible because it is where we learn so much and where we can really accelerate our knowledge. So being very hands-on, creating that bridge between theory and practice for me is what 
motivates me to be a stubborn optimist and really believing that we can do things for the better. If I were only sitting behind a desk or only doing research, I think it would be very difficult for me to stay optimistic. I need going to the tool shop, working with the practicalities, really the hardware solutions as well. And then of course, surrounding yourselves with like-minded people. And that doesn't mean that you should not talk to people who aren't like, we should definitely embrace diversity, but we do need to have a community and celebrate that community. And it doesn't have to be that people are working on the exact same solutions as you, because there are so many solutions necessary, but surrounding yourself with people who also are working on great solutions is for me something that gives me a lot of energy. Yes. Thank you, Dieter Leisgaard-Vin at The Circular Way for your work as a change maker and your commitment to design in the Anthropocene, global sustainability and Danish design heritage. And of course, for what you do to bring about the circular economy that sustains all life and improves systems for the betterment of society. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yen Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yen Songli with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Hien Song Lee. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at the team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.